Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash hangup and using the promo code hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 7th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the strange season of basketball's latest one-and-done superstar as Ben Simmons is putting up great numbers for an LSU team that is going nowhere. We'll then be joined by Luke O'Brien to discuss a weekend of upsets in UFC, where Ronda Rousey's conqueror Holly Holm lost in her first championship defense, and the sport's highest-paid star Conor McGregor took his first UFC loss. Finally, the New Yorker's David Owen will speak with us about a scourge of cheating and bridge, because that's what we wanted to talk about today, and you're not going to be able to stop us unless you hit pause and then back in your podcast app, in which case, you know what? You won't get to hear a great conversation about cheating and bridge. But we are pretty eminently stoppable, I think you've proven. <laughs> Highly st- <laughs> We're fast-forwardable. Yeah. We're speed-upable. Um, Don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> joining me in Washington, D.C. is a man who's had- Never played bridge. Never? Never. Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And you know that your game of- Skill and strategy is not very popular if Stefan Stefan Fatsis has not played you. Hello, Stefan. Hi. David Owen wrote a piece in uh, 2007 in which he lamented that bridge began declining in the 1960s. Because Um, of co-ed fraternities? Because of of co-ed dormitories. Co-ed dormitories, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's as good a reason as He said, could have been television, Vietnam, birth control. (laughs) Co-ed dormitories, though. Had to coincide with some other cultural trend. (laughs) (laughs) The Mets winning the World Series. Yeah, the Super Bowl. Uh, 
first super moon Bowl. landing i'm going with moon landing moon landing yeah. with us in new york is mike pesca and you know if we put a man on the moon i think we can get Stefan fatsis to play bridge if we put a man on the moon why can't we make buzz aldrin play the dummy hand you know <laughs> in in the entirety of our show this has proved the hardest phrase to google you really have to remember the name of the author and the title because if you try to google new yorker bridge scandal you get nothing about this article <laughs> Not uh, not not the right bridge gate. No, no. We're going to have no Trump problems in Fort Lee. Is that ever said? No, it depends. It depends how he does in the caucuses. No Trump. I feel like uh, there's something there. Yeah, yeah. Like bridge bridge players against Trump. Mike host the gist. If you want to intern for this podcast this summer, email us at hangup and slate at slate dot com. We want somebody in D.C. Uh, that's hang up at slate.com. Let us know if you want to intern for us this summer. Um, on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, you notice we're not, I didn't mention Peyton Manning's retirement. We're going to talk about Peyton Manning's retirement in the Slate Plus bonus segment. And if you want to hear it and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up at slate.com slash hang up plus. If you really want to know what Stefan thinks about Peyton Manning's retirement, you can get that free two week trial. Try before you buy. That's probably not a great incentive to sign up for Slate Plus. I want to hear it. That's kind of you. That is. Slate.com slash hangup plus. It is the greatest incentive known to man. On Saturday in Lexington, Kentucky, John Calipari's Wildcats beat LSU 94 to 77 behind uh, Tyler Ulysses 14 points and 14 assists. He's tiny, but he's good at basketball. My favorite uh, moment of the game was that they did uh, senior day in Lexington for Alex Poitras, who was the first player recruited by John Calipari to have a senior day at Kentucky. How many years? It's been a few. I mean, he was a he was a Memphis in the mid two thousands with okay. Derek Rose, right? But There's that's got to be some end of the bench guy. No, but that's because not recruited. that that's it. That's be, that's the deal. Uh, there have been seniors, but the walk-ons are just walk-ons. And then, oh, who was the um, Kyle? Uh, Wilcher is a senior at Gonzaga. Right. So he left. <laughs> he transferred, yeah. yeah. So caveat, all, all caveats applying. First uh, senior day. Congratulations, Alex Poitras. Um, on the other side, Ben Simmons had 17 points, 11 rebounds, four assists, and seven steals. But that wasn't nearly enough to get the win. LSU fell to 18 and 13 on the year. Will now need to win the SEC tournament this weekend to make the NCAA tournament's field of 68. Uh, Simmons was born and raised in Australia before coming to the U.S. for high school. He went to LSU because his godfather is an assistant coach there. They made him a literal godfather offer. That decision hasn't done much to hurt his draft stock. He's averaging 20 points, 12 rebounds, and five assists per game. Everyone still pegs him as the number one pick in this year's NBA draft. But even so, LSU has had a crappy year um, for reasons that I can bore you with later in the segment or perhaps off the air. Uh, it's hard to miss the tournament if you have the best player in the country. There are 68 teams in it. That's a lot of teams. A lot of teams. And there are also reports that my yeah, Yale's going to be in the tournament. Yeah, Yale. Um, there are also reports that my stars, a guy who's about to get a hundred million dollar shoe contract, isn't focusing on his studies. Um, if Ben Simmons played at Yale, then I think they might have an even better record. I don't know if he would be able to stay eligible though. So, Mike, uh, we went to see Ben Simmons at the Barclays Center earlier this year, and in characteristic fashion, he was great, and LSU uh, barely lost to Marquette. So. How do you think about this year for a guy who's a great player, kind of went to a school that's not a lock to make the tournament, and then, you know, it's it's going to end, I think, in this 
way that nobody really wants with the best player in the country not playing in the tournament. Well, I've been informed by uh, Mark Edelman, who writes about sports and the law in Forbes, that are going to see Ben Simmons as one of the factors and is in him having only a D average. As Edelman writes, in the case of Ben Simmons, LSU scheduled basketball games this fall at Brooklyn's Barclays Center. He was writing about all the many demands on student athletes. Yeah, well. And then I think it was wrong for Kentucky students to chant GPA, GPA. Look, look to thine own. I think that what we're seeing is that not only is college basketball not great for its stated uh, student part of the student athlete game, is it really that great? As for the athlete part, is Ben Simmons getting the best year's worth of internship or the best guild that he could be a part of? It seems that he hasn't really learned to shoot. He wows you all the time, but uh, with his passing and his knowledge of the court and everything else involved in the game, wouldn't he just be better served if there were a, a real true minor league or a D league like there is or a professional European league? What, or if he had gone to Kentucky. Well, what did he get? But what did he get out of? I'm not just even saying LSU. Sure, the Kentucky guys have gone on, but it gone on to greatness. But here's an Australian. Why did he go to an American college. I think he would have been better off given his many other options. You know, professional play in Europe is often seen as a really tough uh, transition for the American high school student. For most it is. But why wouldn't that be in many ways easier for the Australian player? I don't know. Porzingis. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. But I, I wouldn't underestimate the, the Kentucky part. What do we know about John Calipari? We've talked about this before. What he does is treat the players that he knows are going to be going to the NBA, whether it's after freshman year or sophomore year. He prepares them to become professional athletes. He prepares them to, uh, for the business of the NBA. And he makes no bones about that. That is his job. He recognizes Not even the one system. bone? Zero bones. No shits <laughs> that's, given. That's the usual amount of bones people make. I, he I gives thought. four bones about it. <laughs> so did Simmons, I mean, it's, I mean, this is a question for you, Josh. Was Ben Simmons getting good coaching this year from the stories I read over the weekend? Doesn't sound like it. Doesn't sound like this is a, a team sort of geared to improve his abilities and prepare him to play in the NBA. And that should have been the only criteria for Ben Simmons for this gap year before he gets to become a professional. Well, the LSU coach, Johnny Jones, just gets killed by everyone for being right. a horrible X's and O's coach, which I think as is typical, um, is just wildly overstated. Do I think he's like a great coach? No. Do I think that he's the worst coach ever, as has been characterized? No. I mean, I think he's mediocre. And I think that Simmons has not been served by going to LSU for all the reasons that you guys cite. Um, there's a chicken and egg thing here because, you know, everybody says, everybody's been touting this thing that the only players who went to college who never played in the NCAA tournament and were number one picks in the NBA were like Michael Thompson in Minnesota in 78, Doug Collins at Illinois State in 73, LaRue Martin at Loyola Chicago in 1972. And the reason that those guys didn't make it is because they chose to go to Minnesota, Illinois State, and Loyola Chicago. And there were like 24 teams or 36 teams in the NCAAs. And, right. you could, so, and, they, and conferences, well, this wasn't the case, but also conferences couldn't put two teams in. So it was a totally different world. And there were no conference tournaments in a lot of cases <laughs> onward. So, wow, so that's the, a lot of reasons. That's yeah, more reasons so than bones. <laughs> the point being is, you know, Ben Simmons, the Ben Simmons-like player always goes to Duke or Kentucky 
or North Carolina, which would make the tournament even if he didn't go there. And so um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it, it 100% doesn't mean that it's his fault that they didn't make I don't know. I but, don't know about that. I mean, it, is LSU that different from the Texas that Kevin Durant went to? What about Lamar Odom? Kevin Durant didn't Island? go number one, baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm just talking about, fine, the number one player. But there are other instances of... Uh, Great players going to second-tier schools. Yeah, yeah. And well, look, making clearly, the they've, <laughs> clearly they've done less well than most have expe- most expected, myself included. And I would point to two things. I would say that, you know, watching this game against Kentucky, Tyler Ulis was not the highest-rated guy on that team. He might have been the least highly rated guy in the great recruiting class from last year, and he came back for his sophomore year. But he was throwing lobs to their big men, penetrating into the paint and dishing off to them for dunks, and making guys who are not as good as Ben Simmons look awesome. And LSU does not have a true point guard. You know, They don't have a guy who can make Ben Simmons look better. To the extent that Ben Simmons looks good, it's because of Ben Simmons. It's not because of anything uh, his coaches are doing or his teammates are doing. And the other thing is, Ben Simmons plays 40 minutes a game because they can't afford to rest him because they're even worse. They're horrible when he's not on the floor. And he does not play defense because of mostly, I think, because of foul avoidance, because he just wants to stay on the floor. And the reason this team is as bad as it is, it's like in Ken Palm, they're rated 154th in defense. They can't stop anyone. And they have nobody who can block shots. Um, Simmons doesn't block shots. And so... I think it's for those reasons that are t- external to him that he's looked and that his team has looked not as good as it might have otherwise. And it just makes you wonder why he went to this situation. I don't think it's making him a better player. And obviously, he's somebody who should have just gone to the NBA if the NBA rule wasn't 19 and over. Give me a comp. Give me a ceiling and a floor. So Kevin Pelton and Chad Ford had this conversation on ESPN Insider. They're like the stats guy for ESPN and the scout guy. And Chad Ford famously revises his opinions five years later. So he looks more prescient than he is. He's post but Allegedly. They're having this conversation of like, oh, maybe Brandon Ingram should be the number one pick because Ben Simmons has been disappointing. But, you know, and Pelton is very intellectually honest and he's like not having any of it. He's like, if you look at the stats and the statistical comps, like, Ben Simmons is having one of the greatest freshman years ever. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that you can put anyone else in range of him for for being the number one pick. And the part that I found interesting was if you look at the translation of Simmons' stats, he's a great passer and he's a great rebounder. And if you compare, like, what his projections are to the NBA, the only person who rates the same as Simmons in terms of those levels of rebounding and passing is Joakim Noah. And the only other two that are close are Draymond Green and Blake Griffin. And Draymond Green couldn't shoot his first two years at Michigan State. Blake Griffin couldn't shoot pretty much at all in his years at Oklahoma. I think Blake Griffin is the best comparison because he doesn't block shots either. He needs like a guy like DeAndre Jordan around him, um, you know, for the team to put up a good defense. He developed an amazing mid-range game. He's a great passer, underrated passer, and he's awesome in the open floor, which is what Ben Simmons is. Yeah, I think that's but, the perfect comparison. But Josh, Ben Simmons isn't eligible for the Wooden Award. Yeah. I mean, it's tragic. 
Because his grade point average didn't maintain a 2.0 average. Um, This is going to be devastating to his career. I think NBA scouts are going to be really suspicious about his ability to transfer his skills from from college to the pros. I have to say, I agree my stars and it doesn't matter. But there is something about me, perhaps it's atavistic, perhaps it's racist, Mm -hmm. that says a D average is not that hard. And the only way not it's to get it's a C it, average, actually. 2. Oh, it's 0. a C average, but he's below. So right, he might so. have a C. He might have a C right. minus. You know, there are, you're right. You're right. You're right. There are a lot of C things. Minus, he minus. could have just failed one course. It didn't go to. It didn't. Care. Okay, I'll take that off the table. But uh, five thirty eight was talking about the comps and the Lamar Odom one year in college stats to Ben Simmons are really, really similar. And so we say, well, that's not good. But what if Lamar Odom was a more motivated, less bedeviled player? You know, just to get to his his path to Rhode Island versus Simmons' path to LSU was, you know, extremely oh more fraught. And then they were making a good point that uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility if Simmons had stayed, he'd turn into Tim Duncan in college. You know, you can't always say that the shooting will come, but if it did, he'd compare favorably to Tim Duncan in a lot of ways. Well, clearly Ben Simmons doesn't have that option, nor does he, I'm sure, want the option of staying longer in college, nor should he. But the difference between Ben Simmons showing up at LSU, taking a minimum number of credits for the fall semester and effectively dropping out after that or doing whatever the minimum is at LSU to maintain his eligibility through the spring compares unfavorably to other players who go to college with the same goal in mind, but don't have the fallback of being the number one pick in the NBA draft. Uh, Michael Powell's long piece in the New York Times over the weekend about SMU's recruiting of Texas basketball star Keith Frazier and what a disaster that turned into for him, for Frazier, and how it exposed the, the fraudulence at the heart of the NCAA is the counterpoint to Ben Simmons. Yeah, Ben Simmons, whatever. He's not going to be Mickey. You know, he doesn't qualify for the Wooden Award. He's going to leave to go to the NBA anyway. Keith Frazier thought he'd be going to the NBA too, I'm sure. And yet he was served so poorly by this system. Yeah, and Simmons is kind of acting rationally here. The irrational part is that he was forced to go through this kabuki right. in the first place. And it's just been a really strange, um, you know, as a fan of the team, but also just as, a, you know, wanting to watch the best player play really well, just kind of how poorly served he's been by this situation. Because when he is able to, like, do what he does best, which is get in the open floor, find his teammates, he's a 6'10 guy who has incredible agility and can Really, there's hard. To, it's hard to even think of a, someone in the NBA who's as big as he is and as agile. Like when you get to see that, there's um, this LeBron the few, feller. He's taller than LeBron. Yeah. I mean, when you when you get to see that for a couple times a game, it's great. And it's there have been some amazing highlights this year. But it's also just served as like a long scouting combine for him. And basically, everybody is just talking about how he can't shoot and needs to learn how to shoot. I mean, he's like, a, he should be, a, you know, a complimentary player on an NBA team right now. He shouldn't have to score like 40 points a game yeah. for his for his team to be able to win. And yeah. also him you taking know. jump shots is usually the worst option. So it's like he could show that skill. He needs to be more aggressive. Yeah. I say, I, I don't know, maybe they could go on some sort of run in the uh, conference tournament, but if they get up to 60 in the Ken Palm, come on, put them in the tournament. Not going to happen, dude. Not nah, going to happen. Nah. All right. 
Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Mattresses are expensive. Uh, they can cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost a lot less, between $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king. Which one do you want, Mike? King. <laughs> king I, Pesca. The king is a big mattress, but I think that, my, I, Mike, I, I, think, I think that you can pull it off. I think that you can pull off that king. I think I think bucks. this literally is going to happen. I'm going for a Casper King. Oh, you are. It's literally as Slate moves to Brooklyn, so does Mike. <laughs> so we have to get a mattress. We're debating King. I have a queen. My girlfriend has a queen. But you put together two queens. You've just got what's what I call the mattress room, and the mattress room cannot stand. You've got two kids under the age of seven. You need a king. <laughs> I need they a king. They like to snuzzle. Oh no! You got to get it's in there. Snuzzling, and two cats. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. If you just want to try a little snuzzle for a couple of days, uh, free delivery returns within a hundred-day period. Hundred days of snu- snuzzling. It's the oh, new I Casper love that campaign. movie. Oh, so additional. <laughs> was so good in that. Transcendent. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. You got that risk-free trial and return policy, free delivery and painless returns. The mattresses are made in America, and you can get that king for $950. And if you, like Mike Pesca, listen to Hang Up and Listen, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash hangup and using the promo code hangup. Terms and conditions apply. On Saturday night in Las Vegas, the Ultimate Fighting Championship held UFC 196, a pay-per-view event with headliners Holly Holm and Conor McGregor. Holm fighting for the first time since her knockout of the sport's biggest star, Ronda Rousey, lost by submission in the fifth round to Misha Tate, with Tate wrapping her arm around Holm's neck until she went unconscious. I'm demonstrating it on Stefan right now. The rear naked choke gets uh, Stefan all the time at the Scrabble board and on the mat. Um, in the second headline event, the biggest male star in Ultimate Fighting, Conor McGregor, got beaten down by Nate Diaz, who took the fight on 11 days' notice after McGregor's original opponent bowed out due to injury. Diaz, who described his condition as fat boy off the beach in Cabo, took out McGregor in the second round again via the rear naked choke. They got to look out for that choke. It was just that kind of night in Vegas. Joining us now is Luke O'Brien. He profiled Conor McGregor for ESPN the magazine last year. Hello, Luke. Hello. And was this a good night or a bad night for UFC? Let me actually add like another two sentences of preamble. The sport is built on stars. These pay-per-views sell based on big headliners. And they're really good at promoting stars like Rousey, like McGregor, and the stars are good at promoting themselves, obviously. So is it a good thing that like some like rando, like Nate Diaz wins? Does that mean that there are like now more names that they can sell? Or does it look bad for UFC when the people that they put at the top of the bill just keep losing? Well, I think it depends on how much you believe Dana White, who is the president of the UFC. And he would argue that this was a good night. Uh, he's already saying that it's th- this fight, this card, is has, is going to bring in more pay-per-view money than any card in the past. Um, 
the unpredictability of the sport. Uh, there are so many styles, uh, so many ways to lose and win a fight. That's what makes the sport exciting. But if you're looking down the road a little bit and what the UFC is going to do with Conor McGregor, this is not a good thing for the UFC. Now, a good thing for the UFC versus a good thing for the sport, that's a different question. The UFC is a fairly monolithic business. It's almost It almost has a monopoly on the sport. Uh, so when they build up a star like Conor McGregor, and they've created this aura of invincibility about him. And, and you got to give McGregor credit, too, because he built himself up, uh, got himself these big money fights. He was paid a million dollars, reportedly, for this fight, which is the most ever, although he'd be getting m extra money on the side from TV rights and things like that. But where does he go now? Uh, he, he, he talked this huge game, and he was beaten. Not so much by a rando, if you know the sport. Nate Diaz. Well, I don't know the sport. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had you over to watch a couple fights. You know, you know, you know a few things. Uh, but Nate Diaz is a very tough guy. He has been training MMA, fighting MMA. He's been a professional for it's got to be over a decade now. And this was a much harder fight for Conor McGregor than anybody, you know, any casual observer would have realized. So. Diaz is a tough guy, and he, he beat him fair and square. And so now he's at the top uh, or close to the top uh, in his division, and McGregor still has a championship belt, though. So there's still promotional opportunity to, to make good fights with him. Right. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't the whole issue here that it, with both of these fights, with the, with the women's fight and with, with the McGregor fight, is that they were sort of anomalous. McGregor normally f has fought at 145 pounds. He had to go up to the welterweight division and fight at 170 here. He walks around at 170, but apparently like drops 25 pounds um, every time he has to fight. And on the women's side, this was not the next anticipated matchup. The idea was that Rousey lost to Holly Holm. They would wait and have a rematch before fighting someone else. So these were tactical decisions made by Dana White. These were like in boxing, trying to, you know, in boxing, you would wait and find the perfect time and perfect matchup, even if it means your fighter doesn't fight for one or two years. In UFC, it seems like people come back into the ring quickly and White isn't afraid to schedule matches that might not be the most advantageous financially or competitively. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I, I think uh, it's to his credit. I mean, it's very easy to criticize Dana White and criticize the UFC. It's a, a very top-down corporate culture at the, at the company, and they do exert a lot of control over these fighters. But... As you say, he is not afraid to make these fights happen. And I think both Holm and McGregor were pushing for fights to happen. McGregor didn't take any damage in his last fight with Jose Aldo when he won the championship. I mean, he was... 13-second knockout. Yeah, it was a one-punch knockout, essentially. And, you know, so then there's a calculation that goes on as a promoter. How long do you want to have a star like that sidelined? And they are cleaning up with this pay-per-view. And has... has his ability to promote McGregor down the line been dinged? Yes, it has. But how much? I think that's the question because McGregor can still go back down to featherweight, 145 pounds, where he holds the belt. They can still make a very good fight there with Frankie Edgar, who's been asking for that fight. They can rematch him with Jose Aldo, which people are going to want to see. Now, Holly Holm, from what I understand, really pushed to have this fight with Misha Tate. Uh, I, th I think that there's where you could... 
question the promotional logic a little more um, because Ronda Rousey was was such a huge draw, and that rematch, I mean, it would have brought in a huge amount of money for the company. But they they are, it's an interesting attitude that they have inside the company. They are, you know, no star is bigger than the organization, despite what Conor McGregor has been saying about himself for months, and. It's they are looking long term. They've built this business over a, a very long period of time. They bought it for two million dollars back in 1999 or something. It's now the revenue reported is is now over six hundred million dollars a year. So, you know, the business model is is sound. They can plug in new stars. They seem to have an ability to do that. There are these there are these down moments for a year, for two years, three years where. You know, interest is waning. They don't have a new star coming up. You saw this with George St. Pierre after he retired. He was the, he was a huge, huge draw, and then and then he left the sport, and and everybody was wondering, well, where does UFC go from here? And then Conor McGregor bursts on the scene. Ronda Rousey is there, so they they have an ability to discover new talent and build it up. Is Holly Holm now Buster Douglas? <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, Holly Holm is not Buster Douglas. Well. What was Buster? What what happened to Buster Douglas? He had He's one a, punch out game uh, that he endorsed and then quietly went away. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was also in Oceans twelve, thirteen. 14, yeah, I think, I think he, he started eating a lot, right? Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah, yeah. So I don't think that's going to happen with Holly Holm. I think that they can still, uh, you know, they're going to bring Ronda Rousey back, have her fight Tate, and then Holm will be waiting in the wings. And if Rousey beats Tate again, she's already beaten her two times. Uh, that's a great rematch with Holm right there. That'll sell. But Holly Holm's got to f- beat someone first. To, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they'll, they'll, Buster I mean, I Douglas, think... I submit. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she would. I'd pay to see that. <laughs> um, so we talked a lot about Conor McGregor, and we've talked a lot about his ability to hype himself. So let's hear a little bit of that and get a taste of what this guy is all about. I own this town. <laughs> I own Rio de Janeiro. So for him to say he is the king and I am the joker, if this was a different time, I would invade his favela on horseback and kill anyone that was not fit to walk. But we are in a new time, so I'll whoop his ass in July. So that was in Rio before his fight wow. with Jose Aldo. I'm surprised he didn't mention the lamentations of their women. <laughs> yeah, that was an oversight on his part. So the role that he plays um, is one that boxers have played and pro wrestlers have played. He is unbelievably good at getting people to hate him and at getting like a certain number of people to love him. But everybody wants to listen to him. Everyone wants to watch him. He seems like a huge dickhole. And I guess there's kind of some sense within the sport with other fighters that this guy's been promoted beyond his ability because he's so great at talking about himself. I think in the beginning of his rise in the UFC, that may have been true, but the recent fights he's had, he has knocked out high-level opposition. Uh, I think what you could what you could argue is that the UFC passed him by strong grapplers uh, when he w- when he first came in to uh, the promotion because he's just great at punching. <clears throat> yeah, I mean he's an, he's an, he's a very good stand-up fighter. He's got very heavy. Well, hands. he grew up as a boxer. Exactly, and there's some there's some controversy over some of the things. When I was reporting my story, I I, I was looking at his website and some of the things that he said on the record about how he'd won these national championship amateur championships in boxing in Ireland and. 
I could find no real evidence of that. In fact, I contacted the Irish Amateur Boxing Association, and they could not confirm that he'd won these. And then, so he might not be telling the entire truth about his backstory. Shocking! Can you believe it? Yeah. But that said, he is—he's very good on his feet. He's got very heavy hands, but he's been the bigger guy in in most of his fights, in all of his fights, really, uh, except for one, I'd say, um, prior to the Diaz fight. So he was used to bullying opponents. He was used to putting his power on them and and having them having them fall down and. <laughs> end in a bloody mess and now uh that he can't do that at the higher weights we've seen that john wertheim in sports illustrated wrote a cover story last week about uh mcgregor and the takeaway from that piece is that for all the bluster and for all the dickishness a lot of it is as in boxing as with a lot of of, of athletes at the top of these games an act that he is actually a very well-comported man, and he is very savvy, and he is an incredibly hard worker. I mean, Wertheim's piece was almost reverential. Did you walk away with the same sort of opinion about McGregor, that the act is incredibly good, and the athlete is also a product of this tremendous work ethic? Yes and no. I, the, the act, I think, is real. That's, that's what's interesting to me, because I hung out with him when he wasn't training, He's the same guy. He really is. He just he just ups the volume a little bit when he goes into promotional mode. And he's he's really very very intelligent. Uh, he's very smart. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, but you know this is not these are not lines that he's practiced a lot of them before they come out of his mouth. I mean he's a very witty, charismatic guy. On the horseback into the favela is a pretty good line. <laughs> Yeah, and then the one before the Nate Diaz fight, he had uh, he had a good line. It's so good that you think that he somebody must be writing these for him beforehand. But he said he was criticizing Diaz for having this very tough exterior, but then being a nice guy in private. And he said, you know, you throw up gang signs or gun signs with one hand, and you make you know uh, animal balloons for children <laughs> with the other hand. And <laughs> that's an amazing, an amazing skill, if true. The, yeah. the Irish are preternaturally well-spoken. The gab, the yeah. gab, right. Yeah. And he, he definitely has it, but he has the belief. That's what's so interesting to me about this loss is because, I mean, this guy, you can knock it if you want, but I guarantee you he has read The Secret or watched The Secret over and over and over again <laughs> until he, he actually believes what he's saying. So... What, where does he go now? And I was talking to Josh uh, yesterday about I, when I interviewed his coach, what I wanted to know from his coach was what happens when this guy loses, right? Are you preparing him for that? Because it didn't seem like there was any room in his mental warfare strategy for a loss. Same and, with Rousey. Yes. Well, you saw what happened with Rousey. She became suicidal. McGregor, it's very interesting to see how he's responding to this loss. He is he is taking it as a learning moment, and he's going to get better from it. Uh, he, everything he has said has been said in humility. It's it's, th and I think that that is that is the true Conor McGregor as well. There's the bluster that really is him. You know, if this was a guy you ran into on the street and you started jawing with, that's that's what he's going to do, and then he's going to hurt you very badly. But. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's all he's a hard worker and he's humble behind the scenes, I would say. Yeah. And that, and it did come across. But there's always a certain arrogance with these guys when they reach the top of the uh, of the sport, uh, especially a combat sport. They walk, they carry themselves with a certain untouchable arrogance. They can kick anybody's ass, basically. And, you know, as humble as you are, that also comes across. So 
when I was hanging out with him in Vegas, he had this, you know, his, his entourage with him. And I remember walking down Fremont Street, which is old Las Vegas, and everybody kind of had to be a step behind Conor McGregor, except for his right-hand man, who got to walk in line with, uh, you know, side by side with him. I like when the entourage embraces roles literally. Yes, it was like a school of fish. So Conor, <laughs> Conor McGregor would make, uh, you know, turn a ninety-degree turn to go down some other street, and the entourage would have to follow immediately behind him. Uh, it was very strange to witness this sort of uh, dynamic when you've got the, the the champion fighter in training camp, and everybody is there to serve him. So that I'm sure. You know, you go through that enough, that will affect your, your mindset, too. I probably fall into a trap of comparing UFC to boxing too much. That's just my frame of reference. And just because boxing did it one way and continues to, for some extent, doesn't mean it's the right way. You know, think about boxing champions and how long they reigned. And it seemed to me a good thing for the sport and definitely for the champion. You know, I'm not even talking about Ali and Joe Frazier. I'm talking about Oscar De La Hoya. I'm talking about Floyd May Mayweather. And when you have guys cycling in and out, you know, First, there's Bones Jones, and then there's uh, now there's McGregor. I mean, different weight classes, and there's Anderson Silva. It, they don't seem to have as long a staying power. I realize that it's doing pretty well for Dana White, or although maybe not that well. But I do wonder if for the sport, not just the company, but for the sport, if that's the best way to go. And then the second question is, is there any other way? I mean, the sport of uh, ultimate fighting is means that you lose a lot more than you do in boxing. It also means you fight a lot more than you do in boxing. Right. Well, let's not call it ultimate fighting. That's okay. like that's like calling tissue Kleenex. That's right. the corporate brand name. So, uh, mixed martial arts. Yeah. It, it, the the extreme analog, punchiness. Okay. No. <laughs> cage fighting. Uh, human cock fighting. Nobody likes that one. But the analog Octagonal is combat tree. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's impossible not to compare it to boxing, right? Uh, because that is the precursor. That is the the market share that, that MMA has eaten into uh, in, in many ways, at least in this country. But you look at how differently the businesses are structured. So in boxing, you had you have your alphabet soup uh, of organizations, and you have a champion at the top of those. And it's very hard to make the fights happen between the champions, which is why you see fewer fights why a champion can stay at the top of an often corrupt organization for a long time. In MMA, there's Bellator, which is sort of the, I, I don't even want to call it the AAA league of MMA because it's probably lower than that. They just put on a fight between Kimbo Slice and this, you know, this guy from his old neighborhood, Miami, Data 5000. It was such an embarrassment. Data 5000 had literally had cardiac arrest after the fight because he was so out of shape. Now, the UFC is by far and away the dominant player in MMA, and so they control all the best assets, and they're going to pit them against each other and in as strategic as fashion as possible and try to make as much money as possible, but these champions have to fight. Dana White has been saying that for years, and it's, it's true. I mean, you can't just have an idle champion. So, you know, given the nature of the sport and the different ways to lose and the different stylistic clashes, it, it, it is going to happen more. It's going to be more turnover. But last thing I'd want to say is that, you know, I was looking through the list of champions in the different weight classes in the UFC the other day, and there actually has been more consistency than people realize at, at certain weight classes. Heavyweight is a free-for-all. It seems like the belt just changes hands all the time. Light heavyweight, you did have John Jones 
there defending his title for it must have been five straight years, ten consecutive title defenses, and or nine. Anderson Silva in the division down, same thing. Jose Aldo, same thing until McGregor beat him. The flyweight division has only had one champion there, Demetrius Johnson. So, And Rousey for a long time until she got beaten. That's right. Um, you had mentioned Rousey being suicidal, and I just want to be clear that it's not like figurative. She said in an interview that she contemplated suicide after her loss, and that's a particular brand of honesty that seems more raw and real than McGregor's version, which even if you think he believes it, he's playing a character. I mean, I think I think that much is clear. But do we know when Rousey is going to come back? And does it seem like, based on what you've read, if she's in a right, the good state of mind, and should she be fighting and, well, and coming back? And let now? me jump in there and say that it's on, if someone is talking like that in a sport like MMA where you're taking constant blows to the head, there might be something neurologically wrong with her. Yes, I agree. I think that's a very good question. And, you know, that's where uh, promotions interests could really diverge from those of, of the fighter. And, you know, the UFC has launched some kind of program uh, to to look into head trauma. I mean, they are they are trying to get ahead of it, because the this, this sport is still fairly young. So we haven't seen the, you know, the issues that we have in football. But we're, right, you don't I, see UFC legends, you know, walking around with, you know, horrible brain trauma because there aren't really any. UFC how old legends. are they? Yeah. Chuck Chuck Liddell, I would argue, yeah. if you yeah. take a look at him, he's good point. Uh, his speech is slurred. It's and and Dana White forced him to retire. He didn't want to retire. But so Rousey, this is a this is a unique situation. This has not come along before, where a fighter, a star fighter, admitted to being suicidal. So I'm I don't know. I I kind of guess that the UFC behind the scenes is really trying to get her help for that uh, but they have a vested interest in her coming back and fighting again so and we haven't seen this with women athletes generally more broadly that's right we don't have a generation of, 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 of you know football players the way we do with men you know the, the collision sports for women are all in the last 25 years all right well um, we will keep an eye on that we will have octagonal combat correspondent Luke O'Brien back <laughs> To discuss it, um, you can check out Luke's profile of Conor McGregor in ESPN the magazine last year. Luke, thanks very much. Thank you, guys. In last week's issue of The New Yorker, David Owen documented a huge cheating scandal in the world of professional bridge. In that piece headlined Dirty Hands, Owen describes how players at the top level of the card game suggested that some of their opponents were cheating and used forensic videography to document the chicanery. The piece has a bunch of great quotes, including this one about alleged cheaters Fulvio Fantoni and Claudio Nunez, an Italian team. At one point, the players were ranked number one and number two in the world. The thing about Fantoni and Nunez that's so upsetting is that they fucked up the game since 2002 when they won the World Open Pairs. So for a decade and a half almost, they have ruined the records of bridge. The stakes are high. David Owen, staff writer for The New Yorker, is here with us to talk about it. Hey, David. Hey, how are you? I'm great. And I love this story so much. Um, it shed light on a game and a scandal within the game that I knew nothing about. And I must say that after reading the story, I still didn't really understand how to play bridge. It is a very confusing game. 
But the sense that I got is that there's sort of like a gentleman's agreement around the game that there are just certain sorts of things that you can't do that even if your opponent, it's, you know, you have partners, even if your opponent has some sort of tell, there are only certain times when you can use that to your advantage and certain times when you can't. Um, can you explain to us a little bit about what those rules are, which ones are official in the game and which ones are just like, you know, kind of th there's a kind of sense of decorum around the game that they're just things that you shouldn't do. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, in, uh, because bridge is a partnership game, it's two against two. Uh, you and your partner sit across the table from each other. In poker, you know, you can sit there with your mirrored sunglasses on studying everybody at the table because they're all your opponents and you can, you know, deduce whatever you can from them. In bridge, you're allowed to make deductions from the behavior of your opponents, but not from your partner, because you can't have no secret information can pass back and forth between partners. I think that's a hard a hard concept for people to grasp at first, and then it's a, it's hard to uh, to live up to it. The the old ladies that I play bridge with have many unconscious signals that they <laughs> illegally give to each other, but it's you know they're in their 80s. There's nothing there's nothing to do about it. One. Uh, one woman uh, begins, uh, you know, sort of arranging her cards as soon as she feels that the bidding has gone high enough. So it's like a signal to her partner that that's enough. I've, I've told you everything that I have to tell you. Bridge is hard to explain. It's a, it's, it's a lot like my other obsession, golf, which in, in, in that you, in order to become even sort of good at it, you have to be willing to be bad at it for a long time. So what tends to happen is that people try it and they feel so frustrated that they, they give up and they go away. Or they become, you know, it's like crack. They become addicted. And no matter, even though they can see that it's, it's hard, uh, they still, you know, sort of uh, lash themselves to it and, and, and can't get away from it. But it's, it's immensely rewarding. I think it's, it's a kind of, uh, there, was a, there was a book about Bridge not too, uh, 10 years ago, I guess, where uh, it was a, a guy who said, you know, in half an hour, I could teach anybody to play Texas Hold'em, the poker game, in half an hour. And in an hour, I could make you better than half the people who play the game. He said getting to that point in bridge would take years. And it really does. It takes years. And so that's, I think there are people for whom that's a, an impossible barrier. And then there are others for whom it's a kind of a fatal attraction. It's a, it's a great game. There's a cultural aspect, too, that you alluded to in bridge, the sort of the, the golf type you know, don't do anything wrong, call your own penalties. Um, and it's embedded in the game, it seems, a little bit more than in other uh, competitive games like poker, like chess, like the game I play Scrabble, where there's no prize money. The money that the the best bridge players get come from these wealthy guys who assemble teams, correct? And, yes, and that a, seems yeah, to a, impose a different level of sort of, of ethic on the game. Yeah, it is. In some ways, it's, it's unusual in uh, competitive activities in that there really aren't any purses. Uh, sometimes they're small ones, but the people who finance it are doing that just for their own glory. You know, they want to win titles, and so they'll put together teams. There are lots of super rich uh, people who are obsessed with bridge and who pay better players to play with them. And then if they're really obsessed, they assemble entire teams. They pay them salaries and do nothing but go and play in tournaments. And, you know, there are people in bridge who make, I don't know, between a half million and a million dollars a year, but it's not coming from prize money at all. So it's very different. For, and it's not coming really from, it's not, I don't think there are even any endorsements, so it's not like it's not like any sport that we that we know about. Right. I mean, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, uh, Jimmy Kane, the former head of Bear Stearns, is a, a guy that's put together lots of teams and is very competitive. 
Yes. Uh, I don't think Buffett and Gates have put together teams, but they right. pay better players to play with them. To play with them, them, right. Uh, and uh, Kane, who <laughs> uh, Kane was the head of Bear Stearns and was criticized uh, when he was for seeming to care more about bridge than about you know driving the firm into the ground. He not only finances the team, but has has sometimes played on it, and uh, he's definitely bridge obsessed. So they, it, you know, Warren Buffett once said that he wouldn't mind uh, being in prison if he could have three bridge playing cellmates who. Uh, would be willing to play all the time. It's it's kind of when people become involved in it. It's it's kind of that level of uh, that level of addiction. Mongo, you're north. Ice pick, you're south. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting. It would be sort of. It would be interesting. But I, I understand what he means because I've played in marathon. You know, it's like it's more interesting than playing Risk. I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I said, "Oh, let's play Risk and we'll play all night." And then after about four hours, you think, "Why are we doing this? This is." impossible but bridge is just sort of the thing about bridge and i find this to be true of golf too which is that every time you learn something new you feel as though you know less because it opens up new you see how much more there is to to it you you never have the sense that you're going to run out of it but as far as this scandal goes you have said a couple times it's like golf but it's not a lot like golf it's like golf because you're supposed to blow the whistle on yourself and that would be a nice ideal but in bridge it's so eminently vulnerable to cheating and sure there's no prize money but you can make a lot of money while being a professional and the difference between a professional gets paid to play cards and someone who's not good is fairly substantial so if you can game the system why wouldn't you and up until recently there didn't seem to be a lot of ways to catch the cheaters and there seemed to be so many ways to cheat so it's all it all came to a head right right in the scandal that you were talking about with uh, this pair right Right. I think what I think what happened is that the suddenly the means for detecting cheating were available. Uh, the highest levels of bridge tournaments had been videotaped for a while, but the videotapes weren't just publicly available, and the the organizations that made them didn't want to just release them when people were under suspicion. But suddenly they were on YouTube, and you could you know you could see what people were doing, and I think that was the key uh, in the current in the current scandals. So you describe some historical methods of cheating and some of the current ones. I want to run through them quickly. There were two members of a team that um, would communicate under the table with their feet, and they were known as the foot soldiers. There were the coughing doctors who would communicate by coughing. There were ones who were caught signaling to each other with scoring pencils. There are ones that moved their cards in a way, I guess like the old lady that you were talking about. And then some of the current players you talk about, they're like moving the like tray that's on the table. This stuff is ingenious. Yeah, it's uh, it, and yet when you, as soon as you understand what it is, you look at it and go, oh, why didn't anybody notice this before? Uh, it was definitely vulnerable to, uh, you know, to this kind of illegal signaling. And uh, uh, but I think you know, it's not the money that drives people who cheat. And it's not, they don't, you know, it's not, people don't get to the top and then begin cheating. I think one uh, bridge player described it to me and said that a typical cheating pair has, uh, it's a psychopath and a toad. There's a really good player who is, uh, who just sort of has to cheat and uh, partnered with a much less skillful player who just sort of goes along. Well, tell us about the the players at the center of this scandal, Lotan Fisher and Ron Schwartz, two Israeli guys in their 20s. And they're they're the ones that that you focus on in the bridge world, sort of unified in outing online and doing this forensic investigation. Tell us what they did and and what's happened. 
they had lots and lots of different ways of passing Ill- information to each other illegally. The people who are going after them have focused on a couple of those. Uh, they, there's a lot of sort of table paraphernalia and high-level tournament bridge, and they were using that, you know, these trays and things, to placing them in funny positions on the table in order to send uh, Ill- illegal information to each other about what the cards that they were holding in their hands. And that's what people were ultimately able to identify on videotapes and then document. Uh, one thing that was difficult in the past is without videotape, you know, you can have suspicions and you can you can see results that are, are impossible, essentially, people who never make mistakes. And yet it was until fairly recently it's been uh, difficult to actually document those the techniques that people were using. And so what can you do if, let, let's say that Stefan and I, Stefan's north, I'm south, naturally. Um, let's say that um, we're able to communicate in one of these like illegal, cheaty sort of ways. What can we do that we wouldn't be able to do if we couldn't see each other, couldn't communicate with each other as a, as a team? Well, you, can, you have this tremendous advantage of always playing the right card, especially on the, the very first play, the opening lead, if you're the team called the defenders, you're defending the hand. Uh, if you always made the correct opening lead, it would be like being a tennis pro who never missed a first serve. It's a big advantage because you know, when, uh, when you're able to attack an opponent because he misses the first serve, the second serve you know is going to be weak. But if the first serve is always right on the money, uh, you're in trouble. The same is true in bridge. The one way that bridge players catch cheating players or become suspicious of cheating players is when they make plays that are against the odds that you wouldn't do if you were just going by the odds, and yet they do it only in instances when the high percentage play would not have worked. And that's an immediate signal. When, when people do something illogical and it happens that the logical thing in that, in that instance alone would have failed. Well, it's like when you hit on blackjack when you have 19 and a two comes up or something. Like right, that. exactly. And you, and, you know, every once in a while you do it. But yeah. if you do it every time and you never, you never do it when it doesn't work, then yeah. people have reasons to be suspicious. So what, is the, what have the enforcement mechanisms in Bridge been like and what have they evolved to with this pretty demonstrative proof, especially group-sourced YouTube videos? Yeah, they're, they're, over the years, you know, sort of every cheating scandal leads to uh, a, a change in the, in the way things are done. So because of the Italian foot soldiers, the guys who were uh, tapping each other under the table, there are now uh, barriers under the tables that keep partners from touching their feet, to keep players from drawing deductions from hesitations in their partner during the auction part of a bridge game. There's a screen that goes across the table in, in high-level bridge so that they can't see each other during that part. And and therefore can't, you know, make illegal inferences from, from hesitations. But sort of every, every, um, every time you make a technological change, then it, it becomes possible to potentially to exploit that change itself, uh, which is what happened with the Israelis. They were using paraphernalia that had been adopted, you know, in part to keep people from doing bad things, and they were using it to do bad things. Do you think we're going to get to the point where all tournaments are videotaped and it's just expected that forensic videography takes place afterwards or even computers start crunching the plays of different players like it happens in chess to find out if there's any cheating involved? And if we do get to that point, will it be good or bad for the game? Well, it'll only be at the highest levels, and the same is true in chess. People will always find ways to foil it. I think the next 
the reason videotape was effective recently was that the players weren't really used to the idea that videotape was such a powerful tool. Once they are, they'll think of other things to do. And, you know, you'll have people who have uh, transmitters in their pockets or in their shoes, and they'll be sending each other signals that way. It'll be harder to detect. So I, I think our experience with technology is always that every time you feel that you've stamped out a problem, somebody figures out a way to... Uh, to circumvent it often by using the very technology that you use to stamp out the problem in the first place. Well, David, some would say you're part of the solution here. I would say you're part of the problem because you're not <laughs> you're not videotaping the old ladies at your uh, at your game. You're just letting them get away with it. You're going to encourage this uh, behavior to percolate to the highest levels of the game or to the lowest levels of the game. Yeah, right. <laughs> All levels. Yeah, of we're, the game. We play at the lowest levels for sure. <laughs> All right, David Owen is a staff writer for the New Yorker. His piece on cheating and bridge. It's called Dirty Hands. David, thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for Afterballs, and sometimes the Afterball title just presents itself to you in the normal course of podcast business. We talked a lot about bridge. There are a lot of bridge names, but I think it's got to be the rear naked choke this week. Stefan, do you object? No, no objections. I mean, I would have gone with a bridge thing. but All right. <laughs> there, it's, it actually is a phrase in bridge also. <laughs> we, we definitely we goes on at... David Owens bridge game with the 80 year old ladies. A lot of rear naked choking. Uh, Mike, what is your rear naked choke? For my RNC, very appropriately, I'm talking about. (laughs) Timely. Yeah, I am actually talking about. You're the the rinse previous, reprevious of uh, (laughs) afterballs. Rinse, repeat, previous. Yeah. No, I actually do (laughs) want to talk about the Republican National Committee and Republicanism because it seems to me that the success of the UFC and that sport itself almost exactly presages the success. Well, there's three ways to pronounce it. I went that one. <laughs> uh, pre- presages the rise of Donald Trump insofar as there was a fiction around boxing. They called it the sweet science, and it was supposed to be played with certain rules. This is my analogy to the republicanism of old, which was, you know, a lot of dog whistle, say, racism, a lot of baiting that was done under the table or not explicitly. And then this you is have like bridge too, Mike. Yeah. And then UFC came along and said, let's do away with all those fictions. Let's just be extremely explicit about this. Let's bask in all the things that boxing fans really do like, even if the poobahs of the sport can't admit they like. And oh, by the way, boxing, just like, um, well, all political parties, so let's not just blame Republicans on this. But, you know, you're, that's dirty pool. It's not giving the people what they want. We're going to be much more populist. We're going to be much more explicit. We're the Donald Trump campaign. So I think Trump and ultimate fighting are either part of the same societal trend, but I definitely think that you could look at... all. Trump always gets compared to wrestling. I think you, but wrestling's been around forever. I think you could look at how UFC has displaced boxing and see a clear analogy to how Trump is handing it to the other Republicans. Luke, your thoughts? Oh, wait, Luke is here. We, we brought Luke <laughs> yes, back it turns out. for his thought. Luke O'Brien, what are your thoughts? Wow. Uh, my thoughts are wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, yes, the, I think that you are. I think you have a point there. I think that the the UFC began as spectacle. I don't know if you're familiar with the the origin story of the UFC, but it it really you gotta, dates... I, I believe he was a developer from Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Very close. Actually, you made a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger reference earlier tonight, uh, and the the screenwriter for Conan uh, the Barbarian uh, was one of the founders of the UFC. 
Did you know that? No. Wow. Yeah. And he started it with one of the Gracie uh, Spawn who wanted to basically promote jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in the U.S. And this was designed to be truly a two-men-enter, one-man-leave contest where, you know, the best boxer would go up against the best uh, grappler and, and which style would win. So, And there were no rules. I mean, there were three rules. There were, I think, no kicking in the balls, no uh, eye gouging, and no fish hooking. And it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Now, they, they have evolved it because they had to get sanctioned by commissions, and so now there are there's a whole laundry list of rules. But but is, the fi- is fish hooking still uh, outlawed? Can you fish, fish hook anymore? Still... Well, it depends. depends what jurisdiction you're in. <laughs> <laughs> another another uh, way to extend the analogy is that John McCain hates both UFC and Donald Trump. Well, John McCain, yes. So John McCain was the one responsible for branding the UFC human cockfighting, and he sent letters to every governor in the state trying to get it banned, and he and he did. He got it banned throughout most of the country, and so there was a dark period where the UFC was taking place on riverboat casinos and you know, on strange on Indian reservations, strange strange locations, international waters. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so they have had to work. Sky Lab. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Biosphere too. <laughs> Uh, so they had to, the, the the executives of the UFC have had to you know have had a long road to I guess create legitimacy for the organization. But back to, you know to your original point, yeah, they they Dana White says all the time that fighting is in our DNA. We love it. We understand it. There there are no there is no dog whistle going on. This is this is violence. It's very extreme violence, but. In a weird way, you can appreciate the skill here. Once you once you have watched it enough, once you understand the sport, some of the, especially some of the grappling that's involved, you you really do start to see the range of skill uh, of these fighters. And I think that obtains in the Trump analogy because he really is a skilled politician. He's ex. He's not just tricking people with his rhetoric. He's very skilled at rhetoric. He has he does a lot of things a real politician wants to do, and you've got to admire him. Also, white level. people love Donald Trump and UFC. White people love Trump. <laughs> All right, before this afterball gets uh, out of control, I think I think you've won this analogy. <laughs> I think this this analogy wins by TKO. Thank you again, Luke. Sure. All right, Stefan, what is your rear naked choke? More Trump. More Trump. Uh, Trump didn't get where he is now without, of course, a lot of enablers. His father, who left him a shitload of money. But the real enabling occurred after it was clear that Trump was a dim-witted, thin-skinned, narcissistic, repressed adolescent, blowhard jerkbag. Trump was enabled by property owners who sold him land and buildings and golf courses, by governments who gave him tax breaks and politicians who cut ribbons with him, and political hacks who encouraged him to run for governor and president, by moneyed people who went to his parties and laughed behind his back, by network dipsticks who put him on television, and news people and book publishers who aired and printed his verbal effluent. But you know who hasn't enabled Trump? The National Football League. Far be it from me to defend the 32 owners of a league that is fucking over its entire workforce, past, present, and future, most notably in the unconscionable brain injury class action settlement that bullshits endlessly about safety and heads-up tackling and the supposed virtues of football that has blackmailed and fleeced one city after another that countenances the Washington football team name that lets Phil Simms announce games. Yes, the NFL did let in Dan Snyder, but it has not let in Donald Trump. 
And that hasn't been for Trump's lack of trying. Trump is, of course, a punching out of his class driver who was born in the end zone and thought he scored a touchdown. When he was enabled in the early 1980s with a franchise in the old USFL, Trump tried to hire Miami Dolphins head coach Don Shula. As recounted last year in the Palm Beach Post, when Shula turned him down, Trump trashed Don Shula, claiming he wouldn't have hired him anyway because Shula asked for an apartment in Trump Tower, an allegation that Trump leaked himself to the media. His quote at the time reads like one of his tweets today. Don is a good man, an excellent guy, really. He just called me to say he was no longer interested, but I couldn't have done the deal. I could not have given him an apartment in Trump Tower. Money is one thing. Gold is another. Dolphins owner Joe Robbie called Trump a Fifth Avenue tycoon who cared more about headlines than running a team. Trump, of course, wound up killing the USFL by bullying his fellow team owners into shifting from a spring schedule to a fall one and suing the NFL in 1986 on antitrust grounds to force a merger so that Trump could get a franchise of his own. The USFL won $3 in damages and folded. Trump said last month that he, quote, knocked the hell out of, end quote, the NFL. Trump has claimed that after that, just two years after the lawsuit, he was approached to buy the New England Patriots. He said he turned it down because there was too much debt. Savvy business decision, turning down an NFL franchise in 1988. Bullshit. Most recently, Trump in 2014 made an air quote bid to buy the Buffalo Bills. Trump said he offered a billion dollars cash. Forbes's Mike Ozanian reported that it was actually around $850 million, 15% less than Trump boasted, and 40% less than local businessman Terry Pagula's winning bid of $1.4 billion. How did Trump respond? With three tweets in two minutes. Even though I refused to pay a ridiculous price for the Buffalo Bills, I would have produced a winner. Now that won't happen. Then, the people of Buffalo should be happy Terry Pagula got the team, but I hope he does better with the Bills than he has with the Sabres. Good luck. And finally, the NFL games are so boring now that actually I'm glad I didn't get the bills. Boring games, too many flags, too soft. When he loses the presidency, I'm sure Trump will tweet that he didn't really want the job anyway. Like the Clintons and many others, NFL elites have socialized with Trump because of money. The Patriots, predictably, have been the worst. Bill Belichick was partying at Mar-a-Lago over the weekend. Tom Brady had one of those fucking hats in his locker and praised Trump. And on the eve of the Massachusetts Republican primary last week, owner Robert Kraft, a noted Democratic donor who did buy the Patriots in 1988, said nice things about Trump the person. But if one of the most powerful owners in football loves Trump so much, why didn't he grease his path into the league? Because Kraft knew that Trump lacked the temperament to run a team, would have been a public embarrassment, and would have contributed nothing to the league's revenue growth. It's been noted that the website Pro Football Talk's knuckle-dragging commentariat is the embodiment of Trump's support. But I went back and read the comments from the bill sale. The day Trump can cough up a billion dollars, I'll get a hairstyle just like him. Such a lack of class in this pathetic person that the headlights have greater favorability. He could offer a quadrillion dollars, and there's no way the NFL will let this clown in the league. A lying, despicable racist who has a history of multiple bankruptcies and extremely shady business deals is just what the NFL needs. And finally, only extremely gullible people fall for Trump's publicity stunts or take him seriously. Pro Football Talk commenters know that the NFL has been right about Donald Trump. The American people, though, not so much. Josh, what is your rear naked choke? So there's been uh, a lot more discussion about the book Manning, A Father, His Sons, and a Football Legacy. 
recently than there ever was when the book actually came out uh, in the early 2000s. So this was uh, the subject of the defamation suit that Jamie Nawright, the trainer at Tennessee, filed against Payne Manning. The trainer had alleged that Manning had either mooned her, sexually assaulted her. And then in this book, Manning, uh, which uh, Peyton Manning wrote with his father, and there was a ghostwriter involved, he told his version of the story and said that the trainer had a vulgar mouth and basically was very defensive and attacked her character. So by way of explanation of that episode, Peyton was like, my brother Cooper would moon people all the time. And he sort of characterized Cooper as like the id of the Manning family, like always just going off and doing crazy things. And Peyton would just kind of chuckle. And then when he would try to do something that Cooper would do, he would just get in trouble and he just couldn't get away with it. So there was another variant on that same theme in the same book. And this is a story that I actually heard because I went to the same school as the Mannings. And I discovered this was recounted in the Manning, A Father, His Sons, and a Football Legacy book. So there was a coach, uh, Billy Fitzgerald, who was the coach of the basketball and baseball teams at Newman. Michael Lewis actually wrote a piece about him in the New York Times Magazine that he turned into an inspirational mini sports book called Coach. And the premise of the Lewis piece was that Coach Fitz was a molder of men and that he was really tough on his players and was really a hard ass, but they all loved him and they learned from him and he made them better players and better people. But then in the 2000s, the parents of kids on the team got really mad that Fitz was like yelling at their kids and, you know, it, and, and kids today and parents today and they can't really deal with this guy being a hard ass and isn't that a shame was basically the gist of it. So in the Mannings book, Peyton talks at great length about Coach Fitz, who was not his football coach. He was his basketball and baseball coach and describes how Coach Fitz got really mad one time and like slammed this trophy down. And this was when Cooper was on the team. And then then at a team awards banquet, banquet, Cooper presented the shattered trophy to Coach Fitz and everyone laughed. And it was this hilarious moment. And even the coach had to laugh, even though he was such a hard ass. But Peyton and the coach didn't get along so well. And Peyton had gone to a football camp and he had had to miss basketball practice because the football season ran long and the coach put him on the bench. Like, you know, Peyton had been a starter on the basketball team, um, but Coach Fitz wasn't having it, even though, you know, Peyton was probably going to go somewhere in football. Like he might even make it to college, might even get a scholarship. Like, you know, the fact that he wasn't prioritizing basketball just was not cool. That that wasn't going to fly. And so they got into a fight. They almost came to blows, according to Peyton and according to Michael Lewis, too, in his piece. And Coach Fitz called him into his office and Archie came, the father. And they asked, like, you know, Peyton, do you even want to be on the basketball team? He's like, no, actually, I don't really want to be on the basketball team. And then that was the end of that. He played baseball and hit 400 or whatever. But the point of this is that in the Michael Lewis piece and in the Manning book, he talks at so much more length about Coach Fitz and what a great coach he was and what a great influence he was than he does about his football coach. And so even though he had kicked him off the team, he respected him and that this was like the guy who had the biggest influence on him before college. The New England basketball team actually did recover. They won three straight state championships behind play, National Player of the Year Randy Livingston. So Peyton Manning not really a necessary cog. Newman football team didn't really go that far in the playoffs. So the lesson here, 
kick Peyton Manning off of your basketball team. It'll be good for him, and it won't really hurt your team's chances. What is the title of that book? Manning, a father, his sons, and a and fo- a football legacy. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a pretentious <laughs> title, isn't it? I was a thinking, bit. who else could write that? And I nominate uh, the late comedian Harry Einstein, whose sons are Super Dave and uh, Albert Brooks. Einstein, a father, his sons, and a comedy legacy. That could be a good one. What about when your kids go into radio? Pesca, Pesca, a father, father, his sons, and a blathering legacy. (laughs) A legacy of blather. I was going to say audio, but blathering works too. Uh, We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.